Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia, but I'm also currently in Copenhagen as a Danish Diabetes Academy visiting professor at the University of Copenhagen. The goal of Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So world experts in exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise health. So indeed, today I bring to you Professor Brad Schoenfeld from Lehman College at the City University of New York in the Bronx, who is a world expert on muscle hypertrophy in response to resistance training. So we talked about all sorts of things around resistance training, but we also discussed protein synthesis and also effects of resistance training on strength. So we talked about the effect of the load, the number of reps, the number of sets, the number of days that you exercise, also various things like whether you should focus on eccentric contractions or concentric or both, having push days, pull days, various ways of splitting your workloads, upper body, lower body, et cetera. We talked about that uh, in regards to bodybuilders, but also the vast majority of people who are not bodybuilders but want to do resistance training for their body composition or for their health. And importantly, Brad is not just a researcher in the area with a very good track record, but he also has practical experience he was a personal trainer for many years, and he also was a successful, competitive, natural bodybuilder. So I think you'll find this really interesting. I did. So stick around. Hi, Brad. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to Inside Exercise. How are you doing? My pleasure. Happy to be on. Uh, so as I, as I said on Twitter, I think you're just perfect to have on to talk about this topic. Um, you've got an H-index of, people may not know what an H-index is, but of 67 or so, which means you've had 67 papers that have been cited by other researchers in their journal articles 67 times or more, which is impressive, and it's higher than mine. So, uh, and you're a, you're a, a a bodybuilder, so that's fantastic. And 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 you know a couple of books on on maximizing hypertrophy, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, um, what I often like to start off with is asking people: Did they start off? Like an exercise, say, so were you like a bodybuilder initially, and then you got into into science research, or were you a scientist, and then you got inspired and you started uh, working out? How did it happen with you? No, it was the former. I was uh, basically a skinny kid uh, going through college, and uh, then I found uh, found the weights, and I just uh, immersed myself in it, and uh, then went into bodybuilding, and I was actually a personal trainer. Uh, for a num quite a number of years before I then made the transition to uh, being an educator researcher. And I think that's one of the reasons that my research resonates with so many people, because uh, when I was a personal trainer, you know, I, I was in the trenches and I started getting into the science and, no and, and finding out that we weren't investigating all these topics that were really important to me as someone who was a body form, now former bodybuilder, but also someone who worked with virtually all my clients were looking to put on muscle. Uh, they weren't looking to jump higher or run faster. You know, I, I, I can count on the, uh, my hand, the number of times I get a client that said, you know what? Yeah, I want to, I want to run. Uh, I want to cut a second off of my sprint time or which is what most of the mm -hmm. you know, most of the research in the field is sports oriented research so you know i'm like why isn't there more research on hypertrophy on, on gaining muscle and uh, anyway my it was a transition i uh, uh one thing led to another where i started realizing that my true love was in uh, research and in education and 
I ultimately uh, went on, got my PhD, and here I am. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably a bit of a niche, and it really shouldn't be, as you said, because, I mean, myself, for example, and most researchers, they tend to be looking at endurance exercise. You know, if you say, uh, you know, we looked at the effect of exercise on APK activation, the assumption is, for example, that it's endurance or effective exercise on glucose uptake. And then even, even as you say, maybe sprint. But it was sort of like for a while there, I guess, with weight training, it was sort of like uh, we, we sort of go on what people are doing, you know, like like if Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing it, then that must be the, the way, you know, it's sort of like anecdotal. But we don't really do that with endurance. We don't sort of say, oh, 10K runners did that, so therefore that must be the bit, you know what I mean? So well, I, I think also that until fairly recently, uh, bodybuilding in particular, but just gaining muscle and resistance training in general was more thought of for increasing strength and looking better you know, and improving mm. your, your physique. And uh, we've come to learn there are a huge, there's a plethora of health benefits and some of them even sure. more than, uh, than there is through endurance training. I think they're certainly complementary, and that if you're looking for optimal health, you should be doing a combination, but I would also go on a limb and yes, I'm somewhat biased, but I am going by the literature here uh, that if you had to pick one, you get more bang for your buck from a health standpoint through resistance training than you would through aerobic endurance training. Ooh, okay. That's probably not the main focus today, but um, yeah, I'm more of an endurance type guy. So I I tend to agree with you there that, um, you know, more and more there's, there's talking about doing both endurance and strength. But um, yeah, I, I didn't used to be on Twitter much at all, but with the uh, podcast, I've looked more and more on Twitter, but there's kind of these questions like, which is the, the most important. Um, ooh. So uh, is it hard to, hard to separate it out? Because I guess do most people that are doing weight training do some sort of aerobic stuff, you know, warming up, warming down. And then also between, well, I guess uh, still fits what you're saying, between each bout of uh, each, each rep, uh, sorry, each um, set, the recovery is going to be aerobic. So it's a bit of a funny one because... You know, I mean, we tend to think of weights as anaerobic, which it is while you're doing the contractions, but the recovery is is aerobic. Well, I'm not I, I quite mean, sure what I'm getting at. But yeah, yeah. resistance training does improve VO2 max to some extent. Now, mm. certainly not nearly as much as it does through aerobic training, which is why they are complementary. But um, resistance training confers, but that doesn't, depends how you do resistance training too. If you're doing a powerlifting type routine where you're lifting very very heavy loads mm. with long rest intervals, those are going to be mitigated to some extent. Their cardio resp respiratory in particular uh, effects are less. But if you're doing more circuit type training or shorter rest, you can improve certainly respiratory capacity to some extent. Mm. But I, I mean, uh, from a metabolic standpoint, there's huge benefits through, Absolutely. Uh, through, through insulin mm. sensitivity, uh, GLUT4, mm. glucose transporters are upregulated. There's greater insulin sensitivity or insulin receptors. Uh, become more sensitive uh, to uh, to insulin. You have larger muscle creates more storage capacity for glucose. So just just from that perspective, huge benefits. And there's just multiple cardio uh, cardiovascular wise. Um, I mean, there's been some certainly brain wise. There's been a lot of research on it. It's really almost every system or organ system in the body can benefit through resistance training. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it makes a lot of sense because we always think of, 
um, aerobic uh, endurance exercise, increasing insulin sensitivity, and often it's cycling where you're really just using a small muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And um, until recently, we always assumed it was how much glycogen you broke down would then determine how much glucose uptake you took up. But um, I'm actually on a paper with Jan Wodicheski, who's here in Copenhagen, where I'm doing this visiting professorship. He recently found no real relationship between glycogen. But whether it's glycogen or something else, it makes sense, as you say, if you're breaking down and turning over energy in a whole bunch of different muscles at a high um, force, you're going to have to take up glucose, um, no, no matter what the mechanism is. So that's all mechanisms. So that's very interesting. So yeah, so we're going to talk about maximizing hypertrophy today. So I wonder if we can just start off uh, talking about now, what are, the, what are the variables? So I know you've done a lot of research on this. So, you know, how many um, reps you do per set, how many sets you do, um, the volume. I know you've done a lot of research on this and how many sessions per week, for example. Can you sort of break that apart for us for, for a little bit there and just sort of give us an idea of what is the best way and maybe also what's the best bang for your buck if you're short on time? Sure. So um, I'll start off by saying that Research is never going to tell us what to do from an applied standpoint. When we're talking about applied research into variables and, and other applied research, they will generally just provide guidelines. And there's going to be a, a fairly large inter-individual difference uh, in mm. how people respond to different variables. And there's also an interaction between variables. So when we do these studies, we try to control all variables. But ultimately, when you alter one variable, you will alter another variable or multiple other variables, depending upon what you're looking to do. So there are, anything I give you is going to be more just a general guide. You know, when mm -hmm. we're talking these things, it's not like I can give you the 10 commandments of you just do these things and you're going to get maximally jack. But yeah, I, I'll start off. Uh, the load is probably the simplest one in that uh, you can achieve similar muscle hypertrophy, whole muscle hypertrophy across a very wide spectrum of loading ranges. Anything from very heavy loads, three to five reps, up until 30 plus repetitions. Uh, and, and our group has carried out some quite a bit of studies on this, as well as many other groups now. And I would say this is one of the few topics that I can have quite good confidence in you know, in giving you uh, the guidelines about, because some of the others, there's some conflicting research, and at least within, I can have greater assurances here on just the general level and making more concrete um, recommendation. Now, with that said, um, there are still some things we don't know in that, um, well, so there's muscle, whole muscle hypertrophy, as I said, where you're looking at what the, if we just look at the cross-sectional area of the biceps, let's say, biceps mm. break guy or muscle thickness, that would be the whole muscle. But there's also fiber type hypertrophy, which doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily reflected when we're looking at that, at the whole muscle hypertrophy. And there is some evidence, I'd say the evidence is still somewhat weak, but I cannot discount it, that there might be a benefit towards uh, type one fiber hypertrophy with higher repetitions with lighter loads, higher repetitions and greater hypertrophy with uh, in type two fibers with heavier loads and lower repetitions. Again, the research is this conflicting research on it. It's equivocal. And uh, I, I certainly don't have high confidence in it, but 
I don't think it can be dismissed. And I think it at least is sufficient enough where in giving a practical recommendation, I would say, if your goal is to maximize hypertrophy, do some higher repetition training and some lower repetition training. Try to stick with, you know, not stick with one or the other, but kind of mix in both to some extent, just to touch all bases. Uh, there is definitely a dose response relationship to volume when we're looking at the number of sets. So volume expressed mm. as the number of sets uh, per muscle per week. Um, but where that sweet spot uh, occurs is still somewhat in, que uh, in question. There, there's some evidence that somewhere between 10 to 20 sets per muscle per week is, is kind of a sweet spot. But that's, first of all, it's a very wide range. And um, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're doing the same number of sets for every muscle group. So there's um, at least a good logical rationale where your lagging muscle groups, your less well-developed muscle groups might benefit from higher volumes where you can then give less volume to your more well-developed muscle groups and thus you're maintaining overall okay. volume. So again, this is where kind of these nuances get somewhat difficult to tease out. And um, I can spend an entire podcast yeah. just going on about that. Well, I was going to say- sorry, I, I know my, my question was pretty broad. If we could just maybe think about, so just make sure everyone's on the same page or even me, for example. So when you're saying um, low reps versus high reps, are we assuming there that you're going to, to failure? Yeah, um, yeah, I should have mentioned that. Okay. Well, not, yeah. You say to failure, at least close to failure, that you're training with a mm -hmm. high level of effort. Correct. If you're using light loads and you're stopping yeah. 10 reps short of failure, sure. you're doing, let's say, mm -hmm. on a, on a uh, rep-equated basis, if you use a very light load and a heavier load, well, there's not... Mm -hmm. It's not a fair, it's not yeah. apples to apples. So we're talking that both of them taken towards close to muscle failure. Can I ask it when, when they, when you, you guys and other people do the studies, do you try and match the actual amount lifted? So do you do sort of like the, the, the lower weight or you just see how they go? Just, just, you know, go to basically close to failure and see how, how it works out. So, so there are some studies that have done that. Our group has it. There are some studies that have looked to, uh, match what's called volume load, which is the way, the number of sets times reps times the load. So it's a more, it's that's a representation of the work that's done. Our studies look at the sets. So we do it on a set equated basis. And there's reasons that I think sets are a more uh, appropriate marker or appropriate um, uh, way to go about studying it. But, you know, yeah. The, and And generally speaking, either way, there's, not much difference in uh, not much difference in the right. yeah. So the interesting thing, therefore, is that you know it used to be you know when I went through undergrad, which was uh, you know my bachelor's nineteen eighty six to nineteen eighty nine, it was always like you know for strength you do um, you know less reps and higher weight, and you know that that may well well still a bit be the case. We haven't really talked about sort of you know doing one two three reps, but you yes, know but even five five or six versus you know eight to twelve, which is your sort of you know general weights and then more for sort of muscle endurance but you're basically saying in terms of hypertrophy anyway because we're not really talking about strength it doesn't make a whole lot of difference if you're doing say five reps to failure versus i don't know 15 20 something like that is that right that's correct and and you are also correct that there is a dose response relationship for strength so mm -hmm. with strength the heavier the load generally the greater the uh transfer to to maximal dynamic strength 
So yeah, yeah if you want to maximize your squat one RM, you got to lift heavy loads with the squat. That's, I get it. I guess that's specificity. Exactly. exactly. Specificity. And the funny thing is, I always think, you know, people talk about powerlifting, and it's actually not powerlifting because, you know, the, the, the definition of strength is one RM. So right. one repetition maximum. So it makes sense, as you say, if you want to improve your one repetition maximum, you wouldn't be doing 20 reps, for example. Yeah. And just like if you want to improve power, you also need to move the weight quickly. It's quickly. Something, at least. Some of your training needs to focus on doing uh, power type movements where you're using explosive uh, velocities. And one thing I've thought about also is, you know, when you talk about if you're trying to match, if you were trying to match the actual um, amount of work done, you know, so, you know, high, higher weight times the reps. Um, what about the speed of the contraction? That's going to make a difference as well. If you're doing like a really slow contraction versus a, a faster, how, how does that, you know, without getting too sort of geeky, I guess, you've got the force velocity relationship, you've got your length tension relationship, all those. I've never really thought through it fully, but if someone's doing a, a slow rep, are they actually doing more, is there more of a stimulus than doing a fast rep or is that too simple or something? So we've done a, a meta-analysis on this topic. And interestingly, there's really not that much, or there's kind of a paucity of research on tempo. Uh, but the, uh, the meta-analysis that we did, and this is going back now, I think to 2014 or 15, so almost 10 years, um, did not show much, if any, difference between tempos up to around the total duration of reps was eight seconds. So that's combining the eccentric. Okay. We did was we looked because there just wasn't enough to look at um, concentric of different velocities versus eccentric of different velocities. Uh, so anything from like a three, three second, four second rep, certainly concentric didn't seem to make much if any difference on hypertrophy. But I will say with the caveat that I am not at all confident in those results, just because the, quality of the studies, they were very heterogeneous studies. And it's just to me not, I don't think the literature is sufficient at this point to drawing good conclusions or, or even moderate conclusions on that topic. And I, I would say in, in closing on that topic, from a hypertrophy standpoint, I would say that the more important, and this is my me talking um, mostly from anecdotal experience, but we we did carry out a study that did somewhat show this, that uh, having what's called a mind-muscle connection, so thinking about the muscle and uh, squeezing the muscle as you're doing the rep uh, has greater hypertrophic effects. That's called an internal focus of attention, uh, whereas having an external focus of attention where you're thinking about the outcome is more beneficial to strength or power. So let's say thinking... For strength of power, you want to think about moving the bar through the ceiling, you know, pushing the bar through the ceiling, uh, or pushing your head through the ceiling if you're doing a squat, let's say. Uh, whereas with hypertrophy, it seems to be better to think about squeezing the biceps. So all the focus is on the target muscle and not worrying about the tempo, really. The, the tempo would be secondary to, to the focus of the movement pattern. Wow. Okay. So that's... Um... That's a complex one. So is that, is that, do you think that's psychological factors or do you think it's, it wouldn't be something in the muscle? So if you took the muscle out and you contracted the single fibers and things, you wouldn't see a difference, would you? 
in well, your mindset I, during the contraction? No, I, I think it uh, allows the muscle, the target muscle to get greater stimuli. And this has been shown somewhat with EMGs. So like if you're doing, uh, let's okay. say, a rat pull, they've done EMGs where they've uh, hooked an EMG sensor up to the uh, latissimus dorsi and the biceps brachii. If you tell someone to focus on the biceps as they're doing it, they'll get more EMG, more activation in the, in the oh, biceps. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I was so thinking- if you want to direct yeah. the stimulus maximally to the muscle that you're looking to develop, it just kind of makes logical sense. And we did carry okay. out a study mm -hmm. uh, that to some extent, it was kind of an equivocal study, but to some extent it did show that a mind-muscle connection did translate with better hypertrophy, at least in one of the muscles that we looked at. Okay. So just, just in case people don't know, so an EMG is an electromyograph. So you're actually putting a an electrode on there measuring the electrical activity going to the muscle. So, so the brain is actually sending more messages to the muscle. So that's why you're getting more, um, yeah. you know, you're producing more force and getting, getting better, better results. Essentially it's looking at the neural drive to the, uh, to the muscles. And yep. uh, again, so now you can't necessarily extrapolate EMG to hypertrophy, but again, it at least gives you uh, it's hypothesis generating information and again, we have carried out to date the only study on the topic, and it lent some credence to that. Right. Right. Now that you mentioned uh, concentric and eccentric, so I'll just make sure, again, everyone's on the same page. So concentric is when you're contracting and the muscle is shortening. So, you know, you've got a, a weight and you're lift, lifting it with your, with your biceps and it's shortening. And then when you're lowering it, you're fighting gravity. And that, so the muscle is contracting, but the, it's, it's lengthening. Now, there's always a lot of interest in this um, you know, in terms of what's what's the best way of doing your contraction. So, you know, ideally, you know, you'll see sometimes in the gym, someone will lift it for them because it's too hard, hard to lift concentrically. And then you'll lower it eccentrically. And, you know, you potentially might get greater strength gains because you're doing greater tension. What's what's the research on, on around that? Uh, for hypertrophy or? Uh, sorry, yeah. Okay, just, just focus on hypertrophy and then maybe strength a bit later on. So... So um, focusing on the eccentric phase uh, versus concentric, when, when obviously naturally when you're doing weights, you're doing concentric, eccentric. What's, what's the research on that for, for hypertrophy? So it's interesting. Um, the, the research is somewhat conflicting. We carried out a meta-analysis on this topic as well. It did show slightly greater or somewhat greater uh, hypertrophy in eccentric. However, it's not really a fair apples to apples comparison because a lot of times they the loading was heavier, you can lower a lot more than you. So it depends if it's work matched or not. The more interesting thing, I think uh, there's two things. Number one, they seem to elicit different signaling pathways, anabolic pathways. So uh, there seems to be different uh, differential uh, anabolic intracellular pathways that are activated. And there is some evidence that the eccentric uh, training um, achieves greater hypertrophy distally, whereas the concentric training achieves greater hypertrophy in the mid portion of the muscle. So somewhat more approximately, which would again seem to make a case for that the combined actions, which you're doing anyway, for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, there is some evidence also that doing accentuated eccentric training, which is basically heavy negatives, so using super maximal eccentric loads and just, just lowering eccentrically. They have what's called a flywheel machine that also can provide eccentric overload. Um, 
can promote greater hypertrophy as well as a specialized technique that's utilized. So uh, again, I, I think the evidence is emerging here, but uh, you'd like to think, or I certainly would have, would hope to think that we've evolved to where we have the answers to all these things. But uh, so much of these topics, there's just so much more to learn. And I, I don't have great confidence in giving you you know, I, I can give you my thoughts on these things. And I mm -hmm. think we, we certainly have a lot better information now than we did when I got into the field, you know, almost 15 years ago now. Um, so, you know, I certainly I'd like to think and that my research has helped to foster some of the explosion. So there's literally mm -hmm. been an explosion since I've gotten in the field on these types of topics, but there's still so much more to go, so much we don't know. So. Well, I'm very pleased when people say things like that. And I, I know some listeners would like to know, no, what's the exact answer? But as a researcher, you know, it's, it's, as you know, the more, the more you learn, the less you know sort of thing. You know, there's more and more questions. And if you do a study and you go, oh, that's it, I'm done, I move on. It, 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 you know, you probably have your blinkers on. So I'm always happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, right, so, so what other variables, I'm, I'm just thinking now, do we need to think about? So a big one is, is volume that you've looked I, at, yeah. I, me I mentioned volume, right. Now, frequency, uh -huh. um, the in interesting thing with frequency, so most bodybuilders uh, do what's called a split, uh, I think uh, you probably know about this, but they use what's called a split routine where they do <clears throat> one muscle group one day and they do another muscle group another mm. day. And uh, mm. some people call the true split a bro split where they'll do some of it's like push pull and then uh, legs. Uh, but sometimes the you know bodybuilders will do like back, they'll have a full back day and then a full mm -hmm. chest day. And um, so there's different types of splits where they're only basically training their muscle once, once or so per week. And uh, if you're using somewhat higher volumes, that does not seem to work well, uh, or it seems to be suboptimal. So you can with moderate volumes, somewhat less than eight to 10 sets per muscle per week. Uh, it seems that one day a week is sufficient per muscle group. So you can do that kind of row split if your volume is somewhat low. But when you're doing higher volumes, which a lot of bodybuilders do, you know, 10 plus sets per muscle per week, it's better to then split it up so that you're doing, let's say chest Monday and then Thursday, that you're mm -hmm. having two two or more, even three, if you're doing very high volumes to get uh, better. It seems that it might have to do with the protein synthetic response that you can tap out the uh, ability of a muscle from a volume uh, standpoint to continue to synthesize proteins. We don't know that, but that is at least a logical rationale why that might occur. Yeah, I guess it also fits with, again, in the old days when I was sort of doing my undergrad, we always said... Um... That you want to do like I don't know three three sets a week, uh, three sessions a week, and, and one one session a week was more sort of maintenance. Um, so well, I know you're saying you one can session do a week. Anymore. Yeah, I mean mm -hmm. one session a week would probably be de you know you would probably start to see detraining. If you're talking about it depends on your level of muscularity too, but as someone who's like a, bod a bodybuilding physique, and if they're only going to train their mm -hmm. all their all their muscles like on one day, so I'm not sure then. If you're talking oh, about oh yeah, sorry, sorry, I meant one uh, each muscle set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. each yeah. muscle one session mm. per week. Um, mm. You know that that again would depend on the volume. So you can you certainly can grow doing uh, each muscle one day a week. It 
I used to be of the opinion that, uh, or when I say I used to be of the opinion, the research was seeming to show that twice a week had greater effects than once a week, and that even three days, like you're saying, might have been better than two days. The more recent, we just did a meta-analysis a few years ago on this, doesn't seem to really show that. Uh, again, I think there's more research to be done here, um, at least from a quality standpoint. We need to get better quality research that looks at that. And, and look, in fairness, you got to realize that it's very difficult to carry out studies where mm. people are training six days a week. Uh, it's just a huge man hour commitment to get your research staff in if it's a supervised study. Now, all mm. our, like in, in our lab, for the most part, we don't do any unsupervised research uh, to, to really get good a good understanding of results. You need to have supervised training for, for most topics that you're studying. And uh, to get someone to, to get your research staff to supervise six days a week yeah. is very onerous and, and over eight, 10 weeks period. Mm. Yeah, and, and just huge amount of, uh, of man hours. It's like um, recently we had someone on there talking about the endurance training studies and you know they're saying it's not, no surprise they're often like eight weeks because you know it, it's, it builds around the semester and you, know, right. you, do your, you recruit them, you do your max test, you do your eight weeks. It's not, it's not based necessarily on, on the best you know, science or whatever. It's, it's, it's what you can actually achieve. So I, I guess I you end up... Oh, sorry, you go. Yeah, I was going to say also somewhat dispute that. It is based on the semester, of course, because once you mm -hmm. go... Let's say if I'm going to do a study and then Christmas comes, well, first of all, everyone's, they're not adhering generally to their eating schedules or whatever. So that's no. a confounder in itself. And then half the time they go away for the winter. But at least with resistance training, you can make a case that most high level uh, resistance train lifters train in cycles. So they're going to do like an eight or 10 week cycle and then change their routine. So it does kind of conform to what ecologically valid uh you know, um, uh, what, what people do in the real world. So they, it, from a okay. resistance standpoint, is that they do often train in these cycles where they'll then reassess and then they'll do another block and they'll have different variables manipulated. So I should clarify, I guess, what, what we're talking about here is people that are that are clean, that are not taking drugs, because as soon as you start taking steroids and things, it's going to affect how much you can do, your recovery, et cetera. So I thought it might be a good time to, for people that don't know to mention your your prowess as a uh, a clean bodybuilder. What's how have you gone with that? Yeah, I, I would first also point out that virtually all the research that we have is on steroid-free individuals. So we don't drug test them, but you know we ask them. It's, it's kind of on your best behavior, and I, I would be highly uh, confident that the it would be very rare if you had someone sneak in who was a drug user. So yeah, so uh, I was for quite a number of years a, a natural bodybuilder. I certainly don't do it anymore. I don't have time, or really the will. It just you get. I got to the point where if I wanted to go beyond that, I would have had to do things that I wasn't prepared to do. Mm -hmm. um, but as a natural bodybuilder, yeah, I, uh, I won multiple uh, multiple awards, multiple contests. Um, I also lost some contests as well, but I, I had an evolution. It was really uh, from myself coming as a skinny kid. It was something that really mm -hmm. uh, was good mentally for me. And I kind of proved to myself what I can accomplish. And you learn a lot about your about yourself in terms of your will to uh, 
the dieting is, is really grueling uh, and the training, you know, just everything that goes into preparation for a competition is very grueling. So uh, you learn a lot about yourself, your ability to dig deep. Uh, but yeah, um, the competitions that I was in was always uh, drug tested where they did polygraphs uh, and then they would urine test. Oh, they did polygraphs as well. Yeah, yeah. You mean lie, lie detector tests? Correct. Oh, really? That's interesting. How accurate are they? <laughs> I tend to watch, I quite like watching crime shows and you sort of wonder how accurate they are. You know, I know it's, it's a bit I, of a side I, issue. It, it worked with me. I passed and I was not. Yeah, sure. you passed. It. You know what? <laughs> hey, um, another one I just remember, I actually did, I saw something on YouTube where you were talking about um, the the short rest periods between sets. So there was a bit of a, I think you, you're calling it a hormonal hypothesis that if you, uh, yeah. that it might affect testosterone, IGF-1, et cetera, if you do. Do you want to just talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. So um, it had been theorized and there was research uh, that when I say supported it, it supported what you talked about was the hormone hypothesis that um, if you use short rest periods, it helped to increase your hormone, your post-exercise hormonal spikes or elevations, which last about an hour, a little more than an hour return to normal within a couple of hours. And basically, yeah, you're, you're spiking your uh, IGF-1 growth hormone and testosterone levels post-exercise. So the, the shorter rest periods, roughly a minute or so rest would cause these spikes. And it was theorized that these hormonal spikes were beneficial for a muscle builder, that they would somewhat kickstart the hypertrophic processes. Um, subsequent, uh, subsequent to that, those studies, more recent research has really shown that those hormonal spikes have little bearing on the uh, adaptations that occur, the long-term adaptations. Uh, my colleague, Stu Phillips, who I think you do know, mm. uh, was central in, in doing a lot of the uh, groundbreaking research on that topic. And uh, again, it, I changed my opinion on that, where we then started carrying out longitudinal studies, which show that not only aren't short rest periods beneficial, but they can actually be somewhat counterproductive. So resting probably two to three minutes between sets uh, seems to be superior than shorter rest than 30 to 60 seconds, which was you know, recommended as a uh, beneficial hypertrophic uh, rest interval. That's interesting. Yes, Stu was on the um, podcast earlier talking about his, his prote you know, protein synthesis, et cetera, right. and uh, protein intake and the effects on protein synthesis. So he's great. But um, I guess if you're doing short recoveries you wouldn't be able to actually do your your uh your um weights as hit as hard would you is that right because you wouldn't recover metabolically so so that seems to be the reason why there at least that's what we speculate that there's could be a negative effect because yeah let's say you're squatting with a, a hundred kilos for 10 reps and then you're taking a minute rest you're you're going to have to substantially reduce the Mm. amount of weight that you're using on the second set and then the third set and then the fourth set if you're resting two minutes you're going to be able to maintain more of the initial uh, load that you're using and thus conceivably that's going to have greater effects on what's called mechanotransduction on the ability for uh, to achieve muscular tension tension within the muscles and uh, that is a driver of hypertrophy so do but do you actually get so just to clarify so when you do the short recoveries even if you can't produce as much forces 
you do get greater um, IGF-1 growth hormone testosterone levels, do you? But, but then it does not translate to greater um, increases in, in, in hypertrophy. That's interesting. That's correct. Any ideas? Well, I guess you just said because maybe you're not doing as much. So yeah, it shows how complicated things are. So even if you've got greater hormonal effects, if you haven't had the same stimulus in the muscle, you may not may not get as much of an effect. The other thing I, I think I was thinking about was um, I don't know if you've looked at this, but you don't always find you know when you do exercise, you get increases in messenger RNA of particular proteins and increases in protein levels and phosphorylation and all sorts of things. But they don't always. Um, so, for example, with protein synthesis, they don't always match with the increase in muscle later on sort of thing. Do you, do you find that with, with weight training? Do you find that the signals don't always sort of match the outcome? Yeah, yeah. really interesting point. And uh, it's always been a fascination to me. Uh, and I've been involved uh, tangentially in work, uh, in signaling work and protein synthesis work. We don't do that in our lab, but I've been uh, collaborating with other labs where we've done that. Uh, and certainly I'm a student of the literature. And uh, it's interesting that, first of all, the intracellular signaling, so like mTOR is a primary driver, you know, is a, mm -hmm. a key enzyme involved in the uh, muscle protein synthetic response. However, mTOR does not always uh, align. Uh, increases in mTOR don't always align. As a matter of fact, very high mTOR levels or chronically high mTOR levels are, ne are negatively associated with uh, oh, wow. okay. protein synthesis. P yeah. uh, P70S6K, which is a downstream uh, enzyme, which is uh, reflective of protein translation, does not necessarily... Um, line up in accordance with muscle protein synthesis. It does sometimes, other times. So again, that's not clear. And as you mentioned, protein synthesis does not necessarily align with long-term mm -hmm. hypertrophy. So mm -hmm. now some of that seems to be due, like if you look at uh, untrained subjects, because it um, there's a muscle damage factor, so you're going to get heightened protein synthesis to make up for muscle damage. If you then have what's called the repeated bout effect, where the body then adapts to the stimulus and there's not as much muscle damage, there seems to be somewhat of an equating effect on muscle pro, where there's, it seems to align better. The muscle protein synthetic response seems to align better with long term hypertrophy. But even then, I'm, I'm still, I think we need more info on that too, because it also, remember, uh, protein synthesis is one. Uh, one uh -huh. aspect, yeah. right, of the protein proteolysis in breakdown. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting greater proteolysis or greater protein breakdown, so we don't know over time how that, we're, generally we're looking at a snapshot at the beginning of the study and trying to see how that correlates over time when you'd really need multiple, there's now techniques um, that are coming along where I think we're going to have a better ability to do that, to track protein synthesis over time and try to match it up. But we'll see. Yeah, so it's still the case that it's, it's easier. I mean, it's not particularly easy. You need to use traces and things, but it's easier to measure protein synthesis than protein breakdown. So is it, is it kind of hard to get the, the both sides of it still? Or? Correct. Yeah, protein breakdown is kind of the wild card. And uh, it seems that certainly protein synthesis correlates better with the um, muscle growth, but that doesn't mean, look, protein balance is what drives hypertrophy. If you're going to have a lot of breakdown, yeah. If breakdowns above synthesis, you're you're gonna not you're gonna lose muscles. You're gonna atrophy. So uh, 
I, I do think that we need to consider that. But the problem is in terms of trying to, like you said, trying to figure out how to best account for it. And uh, yeah, it's a difficult uh, metric to study. Okay. So we've been talking about how to maximize hypertrophy. Can we also just think a little bit about, you know, most people are not sort of out there going, you know, doing 20, you know, like, oh, should I do 10? 10 sets a week or 20 sets a week or 30 sets, you know, most people are, are, are more sort of recreational. They want to look, you know, classic, you know, look good at the beach for summer or whatever. What's what's the best bang for your buck? And, and, and I wonder if it's like when we talk about endurance training, I think you just want to get people out there really. You know, like, is it, does it get too complicated where people go, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't go to the gym because I don't know if I should do eccentric or concentric or both or, how many sets and how many reps and, you know, is it better just to get out there like three days a week or something? And, and then the results are going to be quite similar. So. Absolutely. So um, again, a lot of my work is on optimization strategies. What is going to get you maximal growth? Because there's a good amount of people uh, in my world who that is their primary goal. However, yes. the major as you talk about, the vast majority of the population aren't even lifting. There's only, I think, less than 25% of the population regularly lifts. Uh, last, last statistics I, I read. Um, so we're talking, you know, three quarters of the population just needs to get their butt in the gym and they'd be happy doing anything and, and getting any results. And even of those who are the 25%, most of them are not looking to be bodybuilders or even to optimize their own genetics. They're just looking, like you said, to gain some muscle to get healthier. And the good news is, is that you can achieve a majority of your gains from a very basic type of routine. I collaborated on a paper recently with a group from Norway called No Time to Lift. It was published in the journal Sports Medicine uh, maybe six months ago now, but it's it's open access, free to, uh, free to read. Right. So again, just Google No Time to Lift and my name, you'll get it. But yeah, we basically, we were trying to look at kind of a minimum effective dose to achieve uh, robust uh, robust gains. And uh, somewhere we uh, we went through a whole, again, I could do a whole talk on this, a whole mm -hmm. podcast on this, but um, we tried, we looked at each of the variables and roughly four sets, three to four sets per week per muscle uh, is all you need. You can train like two days, or get that in within two days per week of training at three uh, would be a maximum of what you need, but you could, if you wanted to get that in within two days of training, really we're talking a couple hours of training per week. Um, mm -hmm. You don't need to warm up really with that type of training. If you're doing uh, uh, moderate repetitions, really a warm up is now when I should, I should also clarify this. You don't need to warm up assuming you're not coming out of, Denmark in, oh. in in January, where it's, you know, it's... Which is when I do not visit. I, mean, I always visit below, during... below zero. Yeah, I mean, so you buy, if your body's reasonably mm. warm coming in. Sure. Uh, but we've actually carried out research that a warm-up did not facilitate greater performance enhancement in moderate repetition. If you're doing heavy reps, if you're doing powerlifting, yeah, you're going to need to warm up. Um, but anyway, we talk about cutting out certain uh, aspects of that people often do like a warm up if, if you want to save time. Um, but yeah, in a very basic type of routine, uh, you can see really good results and get, you know, I, I don't like to necessarily throw out percentages in this regard, but you can achieve 60, 70% of your, your potential with that type of routine. Most people can. 
Okay, so that'd just be like an hour, two or three days a week, something like that. I, I guess it, it also depends. You know, you see people in the gym where they, this is another one I, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to ask you. You know, you see people in the gym, they'll do like, you know, one bicep curl and then they'll wait three minutes, then they'll do another bicep curl and just doing nothing else. It, it, it never sort of made sense to me. Why not just do circuits? So, you know, you talk about upper body, lower body, switching around, whatever. You know, why not just work one muscle and then while it's recovering, do another muscle and just be much more efficient? Is there any evidence that that you lose anything by by being sort of efficient? So why you do what you do, you do upper body, for example? I know you talked earlier about upper body days and lower body days, but if you're doing, you know, like someone that just wants to get a bit of bang for their buck, going to the gym a couple of days a week. Is there anything to be lost at all by by doing like okay biceps and then you do half raises and then you go back to like I don't know, triceps and then you do you know squats or, you know what I mean like why stand around looking in the mirror and sort of waiting for this full recovery? So I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, first of all, in our paper we talked about the potential use of supersets as a technique, like a uh, agonist antagonist. You do a bicep curl, then you do a tricep press down. So uh, immediately after, that's called a superset where you do okay. one exercise immediately followed by another. And usually it's like using agonist or often using agonist antagonist muscles. So an agonist mm -hmm. antagonist would be like biceps, triceps, uh, your back muscles, your pectoral muscles. Yep. Um, I was involved, I collaborated on, I, from my knowledge, it's the only paper that looked at uh, supersets on longitudinal hypertrophy. Did not really show any differences, um, but there was some issues with, when I say issues, there was some limitations of the paper. It used bands, not weights, um, mm -hmm. untrained subjects, but I will say, so yeah, right now I think it is a viable, it doesn't seem to be any negative effects. The good news is, is that um, next year, spring 2024, one of my master's students will be carrying out for his thesis a study on this very topic so we will have better maybe i can come right. back in a year from now okay. and answers on that and i guess i was thinking also so the superset is is like you said so if you do your bicep and then straight away you do your tricep but what about if you just do your, your bicep and then you do calf you know like is it calf yeah that, that's a like, different does it, type does it matter yeah i mean no it doesn't matter so there is some uh when i say uh, research or some evidence there's there's been a rationale that you get a uh, potentiating effect from doing the biceps that it potent one potentiates the other. You might actually get a better result. Ah, reciprocal inhibition and things like that. Is exactly. that right? I didn't want to go. I thought that might be yeah. too technical, but correct through reciprocal inhibition that uh, there might be beneficial effects. But yes, and uh, I, I guess because we've said that, do you want to just explain a little bit what reciprocal inhibition is? Um, yeah. So. When you train one muscle, the other muscle gets quiescent and that, that can then have a positive effect on when you then uh, train the other muscle. Okay. And I know, I know people push, uh, talk uh, a lot about, you know, do you push, push one day and pull the next and things like that. I don't know. Again, I'm not, I'm not really an expert on this, but sometimes I just feel like it's too complicated. So, you know, you, you go to the gym and your personal trainer will say, oh, no, no, that's a push exercise. You can't do that. You got to do a pull exercise. And again, it's just, I'm sure there's some rationale to it, but again, it's just that thing about, does it get too complicated for people that, you know, oh crap, this is my pull day, not my push day. Oh, yeah, I would not do well, it. I, I mean, if you're, so I would answer that in two ways. If you're the average person, you don't need to worry about that stuff. There is no ideal split per se. And, uh, 
uh, you don't even need to do a split. Like I said, you could just do this very basic routine. If you're a bodybuilder or someone who just is really interested in maximizing their genetics, then it complicated shouldn't be your issue. You should want to understand exactly. that to That's get true. your results or an athlete, uh, because that is part of your, the, the tools that you need to use to achieve, you know, it's not easy. So I can kind of, uh, I, uh, in a former life was considering becoming a professional musician. Uh, I've studied music and, and yeah, if you want to just, you know, learn to play piano and be happy sure. playing piano, exactly. you, you can just, you know, play around, do a half hour a day of practice or whatever and, and get decent. Cool. If you want to take it to the next level, you're going to need to really study the music theory. And you say, well, I don't want to go get that complicated. Then don't become a professional musician. I'm, I'm showing my own sort of biases and things. You know, as you get older, you tend to take more interest in, a in aging research. It's because I used to be a distance runner and I keep thinking, oh, I should, I should start doing more weights. But, you know, I'm not thinking, oh, I want to be a bodybuilder. So I'm showing my my sort of biases there. Sorry about that. Um, so what about uh, if we can keep... Talk, do you have a bit more time to keep yeah, uh, sure. pushing things out? Okay. What about, again, again, it's going to be different if you're a bodybuilder versus uh, someone that's not as serious, but what about um, free weights versus um, machines? My, my feeling is that that the serious bodybuilders and, and, and even people that want strength, they tend to focus on free weights because you're not getting that sort of guided contraction. They want their, you know, why don't you explain? Yeah, so I'll address this from a hypertrophy standpoint because uh, from a strength that kind of yes. can go in a different direction. But from a hypertrophy standpoint, there's really no, uh, re there's very little research to date anyway, but the evidence that we have, there's no good evidence that one is better than another. Um, I would say just anecdotally, given the paucity of research, it's best to combine, if, you, if your goal is to maximize gains, it's probably best to combine them. Uh, for the simple reason that they, the advantages of one are the disadvantages of another. So free weights uh, involve more stabilizer muscles. So you're going to get other muscles that you wouldn't necessarily get involved uh, in, in the exercise and that they then would, would hypertrophy uh, during your training. Whereas a machine will take away the stabilizer to some extent uh, take away the stabilization component and thus focus on a given muscle. So you can yeah, conceivably right. get greater tension within a given muscle. And thus they would, again, seem to be complementary and synergistic. Mm. If, if again, you're the average individual, do whatever is better for you. I, I will say this too. Um, a machine has safety issues. Uh, so safety benefit when I say safety issues. It can be safer for people, mm -hmm. particularly when they're first starting out, that you, you're not going to drop a weight on yourself, you know, or, yeah. or you don't need a spotter as a general rule when you're using a machine. So there's there can be beneficial effects. So it, it can take out, there's less risk uh, for injury. Although resistance training, I want to also point out, if you resistance train properly, uh, very, very safe endeavor assuming you understand what you're doing and you're training with good form. Uh, people make, you know, talk about the injury risk. Uh, in my years as a personal trainer, we had extremely few injuries. We did thousands and thousands of man hours or, or people hours, I should say of, uh, of training. And I could count on one hand, people who complained of a 
you know, a, a training related injury and they were nagging, like, you know, just feeling like some tendonitis or something in some people, but very, very rare. Like I said, that's out of thousands and thousands. So, you know, less, way less than like a 10th of 1%. Okay. Now I'm not sure if you're aware of this one, but uh, Stu Phillips actually mentioned something about if you do weights and then aerobic after it, versus if you do aerobic and then weights, there's I can't remember what he actually said now, to be honest. But um, I, 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 you know, the the, the different in, uh, adaptations you get, I guess. Uh, do you know much about that? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure what Stu is referring to. So uh, I just want to make sure I'm answering the question that I think you're. Oh, asking. well, I think I think I, he said it once. Day, I th I think the bottom line was if you do weights and then you go you go for a run, for example, you'll tend to get greater adaptations with the weights than if you did you run and then you, you weights. I guess it's whatever you're doing fresh. I guess, but I can't. So, so that, that exactly. So yeah. So as a general rule, it is better to do resistance if your goal. So I'll preface it, if your goal is to maximize strength, hypertrophy, resistance training oriented results, it is better to do your resistance training first. Because you're going to get tight, if you're doing aerobic training, particularly mm -hmm. if it's somewhat of a lengthy or, or high intensity aerobic bout, uh, you're going to deplete your energy resources, and thus you're going to reduce the quality of your resistance quality. training. So yeah, uh, yeah it, it would be better. It's even better if possible to do them in separate uh, bouts, like mm -hmm. morning, evening, or separate days if possible, because there is at least some theory there is conflicting intracellular signaling. A uh, colleague of mine, Henning walker -Hodge, did some really seminal mm -hmm. work in this. He talked about the AMPK-PKB switch hypothesis where there was conflicting intracellular signaling with aerobic-like training versus uh, resistance type training from AMPK having a greater neg, you know, kind of having a negative effect on anabolic processes and a PKB overriding the negative effects of AMPK. Actually, that reminds me, it might, might have even been the same paper. I had Graham Holloway on, who's, you know, big mitochondrial sort of researcher. And he was saying something about, I think, uh, endurance training had greater reactive oxygen species. They, they stayed up for longer versus strength training, or maybe it's the other way around. Is, is that, does that ring a bell at all? I'm not sure. So <laughs> I, 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 I need to go back and watch my own podcast again. Sorry. Yeah, I don't recall the research on um, aerobic training with uh, free radicals, but certainly with resistance training, if anything, free, radical, um, free radicals have some, there's some research showing that they actually uh, serve as um, stimulators of hypertrophy that, uh, so we, we know that generally chronic free radical production, like through smoking or air pollution, uh, has decidedly negative effects on health. Mm -hmm. The acute free radical response seems to have positive effects. And it, very interestingly, um, there's been a number of research studies now that show that taking antioxidants, uh, yes. particularly vitamin A and C, in superphysiological dosages, which are uh, purported to be health producing because they block free radicals, actually have negative effects on anabolism. Well, that's interesting because it's it's some studies, of, we actually did some studies on this looking at mitochondrial biogenesis, but we didn't find much effect. But other people have found for, as, as well with endurance training that you can actually uh, prevent some of the uh, positive, positive effects of endurance training as well. So that's, 
That's that's actually interesting because one one thing, of course, is to think about is is supplements. And you know, with Stuart, we were talking Stu Phillips, we were talking about protein and whether people need to be you know shaking their protein shakes so they take it the millisecond after they finish their bout or not. And he was suggested that you know that he didn't think that was necessary. Um, I guess I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. You know, protein and creatine and and you know, it's almost like an obsession with people. Um, making sure they get enough protein, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts. So first of all, yeah. uh, we, we actually, our group has done quite a bit of work on that. We published uh, the first meta-analysis on the topic. We've done original studies on the uh, timing factor. So uh, I was a big proponent of the anabolic window. I, I grew up reading Muscle and Fitness magazine and um, mm -hmm. totally bought in. I would be the one who was slamming my shake as soon as I finished every- Shaking it just before the last set. Yeah, 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 making sure I don't want to I don't want to miss a second of that anabolic window. Mm. Uh, and uh, the research really shows that it's uh, quite unimportant for the most part. Now, can I conclusively uh, infer that there's no benefit? No. And, and in fact, when I'm coaching bodybuilders, I tell them, yeah, it's better to take it earlier rather than later. And still, I, you know, I try to eat my uh, lunch. I generally train mid morning and then I'll get my lunch. But I don't get, I, now I don't bring my shake to the, uh, I don't, certainly it's not that important. Uh, and I think the general research shows that you can go you know, multiple hours without eating. Uh, the, the most important thing that's been shown now is the overall daily protein intake. And you, for resistance training, you need to consume generally a minimum of 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of, uh, of protein and perhaps more, uh, somewhere between 1.6 to up to around 2.0, maybe even 2.2. Somewhere in that range is your kind of sweet spot for protein. And any more than that is going to be superfluous because your body cannot store the protein and you're just going to mm -hmm. oxidize it. Um, also, there's kind of, there's been these myths we published on this that you can only, um, you, you can only utilize actually the myth is you can only absorb 25 grams of protein per sitting. You can absorb almost, uh, absorption is how much you can actually get into your bloodstream and virtually everything that you consume, all the protein you consume is absorbed into the bloodstream. How much you can utilize is still somewhat of a question, but uh, a lot of the studies that have been done have looked at, they, they're very sterile studies. So they they basically involve no other food except the whey protein. Yeah, exactly. Which is going to be a fast acting protein that gets into your bloodstream very rapidly. It's going to be oxidized more rapidly. When you eat a meal, like most people do for their, mm. their, their food sources, you know, you're taking in fats. The absorption is going to be time released into your bloodstream. And uh, the capacity to, to utilize that protein over time is going to be much greater. So, uh, you know, Generally speaking, uh, we published a paper uh, hypothesizing, because again, we don't have great evidence on this, that probably three to four meals a day of roughly equal protein spread out across a day. But if you're eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for the vast majority of people, it's not going to make much, if any, difference. If you're a bodybuilder, I'd probably say four meals a day would be ideal, where you have like a snack somewhere in there to just ensure that... So, so I, I will say this, um, food is anabolic and the time course of the, uh, of the anabolism of a meal lasts around five to six hours. So 
yeah, if you're eating your last meal at 7 p.m. and then not eating again till 7 a.m., conceivably you're mm. missing, you're going to be catabolic for a period. How much negative effect is, you know, four or five, six hours of not eating? I don't know. Uh, but can't hurt if you're a bodybuilder to try to, right before you go to sleep, at least get some protein in. So I guess, I guess you're saying, um, to put all that together, so the, the evidence has shown that the actual exercise stimulates protein synthesis for more than 24 hours. 24 hours, exactly. Yeah, so, but, it's, but it's more like you just want to make sure you've got the protein on board because the protein synthesis is going on, but you want to have enough protein there to actually have it taken up. Well, right, the muscle is sensitized to protein. So yeah. it's not like you just, you lose the effect, but you, you do to some extent, you know, look, your muscle, think of the, the protein synthesis like a factory. If you close the factory down for a period of time where you're not allowing it to actually do its work, even if it's ready to go, you're not giving it the materials. to. You're make revved it. up with nowhere to go. Yeah. yeah, You are to some extent missing out. But how much but is How it, much of an effect that has still has not been shown. Is it fair to say, though, that, that um, most people that have a, a normal healthy diet get enough protein, do you think? Um, especially because obviously if they're exercising, they're going to be burning up more calories, they're going to be eating more. Or do you think, depends how much they're doing, um, I guess. But I, you know, like it, the, I guess, yeah. So, so I, some of the literature shows, I, I can tell you that from our, uh, our research that we carry out in, in our university, so it's always on younger college students, we get food diaries on all of them. Now, I don't know if their reporting is accurate or not. We're not with mm -hmm. them. But they are not getting generally the 1.6 on average. Some of them are, but okay. on average, they're generally getting 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram. So they're not getting... Uh, now, is that going to be... Does that mean they're not going to grow muscle? No. If, again, to maximize muscle growth, you want it. Probably for most people, that's a lot. But there is some evidence that women tend not to get as much protein as men. Uh, so... Mm. Uh, I think that is something that needs more scrutiny. And, um, you know, if true, uh, we've not done any research. I certainly have not been involved in that research. But the research I've seen, uh, the last I've looked, seems to show that women tend to not take in sufficient protein compared to men. Okay. I guess food records are sort of known to be underreport slightly, but but you feel... Even allowing for that, so it's quite a few people are borderline, especially females, I guess. Correct. Yeah. Now, now, how okay. much of an effect is that going to have on if you're talking about muscle mass? Um, not clear, uh, but certainly you're not going to maximize your muscle mass. I think it will be more of a problem as people uh, start getting older. You know, for older, uh, mm -hmm. older adults, because number one, there's a uh, you're going to have an insensitivity of the muscle to anabolism. So they're basically muscles become, uh, you know, more prone towards uh, or, or need more protein per dose to achieve what's called a leucine threshold and to okay. synthesize protein. So there basically becomes anabolically insensitive uh, is a term that's often thro uh, thrown And that's around. even if they are doing weights, because obviously as people get older, they become this active, but if they're doing the same sort of weights, amount of weights, so, so they there still is, become the, anabolic. Yeah. Well, yeah, there is some evidence that those people who are over a lifetime uh, continue lifting tend to stave off uh, the anabolic insensitivity, but they still do tend to become less sensitive to protein. And 
generally speaking, too, as people become older, their taste buds uh, are mm -hmm. desensitized as well, and people tend not to eat as much. So if you're not going to eat as much, then you're not often that's going to compromise protein intake. So uh, I, I would say that uh, focusing on your protein intake is a very important factor to take into account. Okay. And I guess I saw a paper by you, you in 2020 about energy surplus. Uh, does that maximize hypertrophy? So if, if you go to the point of actually taking in even more energy, I guess you're getting more protein as well. Do you actually get greater gains or, or not? Yeah. So um if you are, you you certainly can build a muscle, even if you are in a, in a deficit, meaning that you are taking in fewer calories than you're expending up to a certain mm -hmm. point, there's caveats to this, but certainly if you're a newbie, new to training, uh, you can, you can achieve what's called body recomposition where you gain muscle while losing fat. You are not going to max, if you're looking to maximize mm -hmm. your muscle gains. So remember that energy is utilized for the body for protein synthesis. So protein synthesis is an energy intensive process. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you are in an energy deficit, the body is not going to have the sufficient energy to maximize that protein synthetic response and, and to carry out uh, the protein synthesis over time. And thus you do not gain as much. So generally speaking, um, it becomes even more important under certain scenarios, particularly if you are lower body fat levels, because the body can't utilize its own body fat to uh, break down that tissue for energy and some other factors should become more uh, well-trained. You tend to need, uh, the surplus becomes more important. And you're going to be more likely to get sick, of course. So we had, um, I had Trent Stellingworth on talking about um, a relative energy deficiency in sports. So Naturally, if you're not getting enough, even if, you, if you're if you a newbie, as you said, you can put on muscle, you're going to have greater risk of amenorrhea and right, right, right. illness and all sorts of things. Now, another one I saw of yours, another one in 2020, you're pumping out papers, range of motion effects. So, you know, again, I, I think this might be an example of you actually, you know, let's, let's test this because people have always said you've got to do the full range of motion to get gains, but you've, you've obviously looked at that. And what did you find with that? Yeah, so really interesting is that the uh, initial portion of the move, what's called the lengthened position, seems to have greater effects, certainly than the shortened position. And there may, uh, under certain scenarios, be a benefit even over full range of motion. So my general, I want to say that with the caveat, I think overall, it's best to train with a full range of motion for a majority of sets. Um, mm -hmm. Strength factors, there's m multiple reasons why that uh I think is important, but I do think there is uh, the potential for using particularly lengthened partials. So uh, a lengthened position would be like uh, if you're starting a biceps curl, the initial portion to going, let's say, to halfway up. Uh, mm -hmm. That would be the lengthened portion, as opposed to the shortened position where you're starting without cheating. Up. I'm sure because you always see people Ooh, doing biceps cheating. and they cheat. <laughs> right, right. But because but using fourth, that, yeah, yeah, using that lengthened position seems to promote. Uh, have greater effects on hypertrophy than uh, to some, in some cases than the fully in the full range of motion. And particularly interesting mm. seems to be particularly the case in the distal aspect of the muscle. Okay. So, so there is non-uniform growth where the, the muscle grows in a non-uniform manner and different, different portions of a muscle can achieve different levels of hypertrophy uh, possibly or seemingly from different training strategies. Even That's that very means. interesting. You might be able to target different portions of the muscle with different training strategies. 
So if you want to arm straight out, so some people don't realize you can you can watch this, you can listen to this on, on Spotify and things, but you can actually watch it on YouTube as well. So you can sort of see what I'm doing. But yeah, if your arms straighten out, then that first bit, you'd be getting hypertrophy in the distal part of the bicep more. Yeah. So if you were trying to balance your, your bicep, for example, you'd get more um, in that distal part, so that closer the, to the elbow. Distal means uh, correct. Distal is the lower portion. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're going to get more hypertrophy in the lower aspect of the bicep, uh, whereas uh, it tends. So there even is some evidence, particularly in the quads, uh, that that is the case even more so. But uh, in the mid portion of the quads, in some cases, there's still a benefit, and others there isn't. But the main benefit to the length and partials seems to be distally. Seems to occur. Okay. In the Aspect, particularly, and it's mostly been shown in the limb muscles. So in the biceps and the triceps mm -hmm. and the quads, the hamstrings and the calves. We do not yet have really any evidence in the torso, in the chest, the back, the shoulders. Okay. Yeah, I guess it makes sense, doesn't it? Because again, again, without sort of we talked about the force velocity relationship very briefly, but there's a there's a thing, as you know, of, of course, the length tension relationship. So you know, if the muscle's very long. Right, you can't right. produce as much force when it's sort of at 90 degrees you produce a lot and then when it's short you can't produce much so i guess if it's harder and it's longer it makes sense therefore that you would get greater adaptations is it or is well, it I, I mean we're not sure mechanistically but there i can provide some theories one of the primary theories is that there's more passive tension in the lengthened position and there are we've done some we've written papers on this about the potential for passive sensors that there, it might have specific sensors that are related to, uh, to the passive, uh, you know, passive tension, particularly this Titan mm -hmm. that affects with Titan, which is a, uh, one of the contractile elements. Uh, and there's other, there's uh, stretch activated uh, channels. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are other potential avenues whereby the uh, passive tension might, that's interesting because even you mentioned ABK. So I did. I've done a bunch of stuff looking at regulation of glucose uptake during exercise, and even um, just stretching the muscle slightly activates ABK. Not as much as when you contract it. So it's interesting. Now, now just to I, I want to make sure we don't forget. We've talked a lot about hypertrophy, and that was the main focus. But can we talk a little bit about strength? So I think you know we we touched on how you know doing less weights, or less reps with higher weights is for strength, but. Can we flesh that out a little bit before we uh, sort of start wrapping things up? Yeah, so uh, heavier loads definitely are, are requisite if you want to maximize strength. Now, I will say this. Light loads can produce strength. It's not like light loads don't get you stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on your training status. Certainly, if you're a power lifter, it's probably not going to do that much for you. But uh, I mean, even with uh, fairly well-trained individuals, you get stronger as long as you're going close to failure with light loads. But there is this mm -hmm. dose response that the heavier loads you the heavier you go, heavier loads you use, the greater your dynamic strength, which as we talked about earlier, was consistent with the principle of specificity. Now interestingly, when you look or when we look as researchers at uh, a neutral testing device, so let's say we're going to do squats with heavy loads and then squats with light loads, and then we test on an isom uh, isometric dynamometer. Uh, so we're testing isometric strength. The gap narrows. There still is some advantage to the heavier loads, but it's not nearly what you would think, not, or not nearly as great as it is with the dynamic strength. So again, the principle of specificity that you have multiple joints moving in a squat, 
so the, the strength is transferred throughout multiple muscles in the body. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is an interesting point. And I, I would say the take-home, one of the cool take-homes, if you're, if you're a powerlifter or an athlete that wants to maximize strength, yeah, you got to at least do some heavy lifting. doesn't mean that all your lifting needs to be heavy, but that you have to include at least some. But let's say you have joint-related issues. Let's say you have osteoarthritis mm -hmm. and you just can't lift heavy. You could still achieve good strength gains. Uh, again, not as, not as great as if you lifted it heavy. There are like former powerlifters that have, you know, screwed up their knees and now they can't lift heavy, but you can maintain certainly much of the strength that you uh, garnered through light load lifting, which is, that's what it comes down to, especially with aging. You know, the, one mm. of the, uh, I think, underappreciated aspects that younger people have is the importance of health as people get older and uh, resistance Absolutely. training is in my humble opinion, uh, the most important thing that people can do for their physical being uh, and, and somewhat mental being, but certainly a physical being uh, with aging. So it's something that everyone should be doing and starting early, the earlier you start, the greater you stave off the negative effects of aging. Yes, I mean, important things like, you know, ability to get out of a chair, you know, people do the up and go sort of test and, and more and more I've been hearing about the ability to actually get up off the floor. You know, is, yeah, these are functional things you've got to be strong. Open a bottle cap. Yeah. Open, you know, open a uh, twist, open a, uh, so, a, a water or soda cap. Well, around here, it's a beer. Uh, people are allowed, you're allowed to wear, walk. In Australia, you can definitely not walk around with a beer. But here you can go on a, on a bus, on a train, walking around, ride your bike, freaking beer. Well, maybe you're not allowed to, but they do. Um, okay. Do you mind if I just go, there's a couple of questions on Twitter. Some of them we sort of came up with already. We talked about. Yeah, I, I got to roll in like five minutes. So, because uh, I have another. Meeting. Oh, okay. I got like okay. five minutes. Sorry. Okay. Slow control contractions we talked about. Uh, there was one here about, what is this one? We kind of vaguely talked about it. The reps in reserve. Um, I guess that's where, where we're talking about whether you had to go to failure or not. Correct. It, it's a bit of a thing going around reps and reserve. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think people somewhat don't, under, some people don't understand the concept when they kind of throw this out, but Reps in reserve is just how many reps are you away from failure? If you're at an uh, RIR of zero, means you are at failure. And then an RIR of one is your one rep away. And it's, I think, a good way to gauge how close you are to failure. But one of the problems with it is you have to actually train to failure quite frequently, at least at some point in the beginning of your training, to be able to understand how close you are to failure, to use it properly. So people are not often very good gauges of themselves of how close they are to failures. So yeah, I, I think it's a great technique to use, a great method, but uh, it can be misused if you don't know how close you are to failure. You're not going to be able to judge it. That's very. true. That's true. All right. So before you go, can we just do a, a few sort of takeaway messages uh, that people can take away from this chat? Sure. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway is that everyone should be lifting. <laughs> if I can make my... my Really, that is my life's mission is mm -hmm. to get, uh, it's a it's a lofty goal, which I don't think I'll ever get to. But the more people we can get into the gym or in, you don't have to do it in the gym. You can do it in your basement or in your your bedroom. Uh, but you got to lift and there's, you, you can use bands, you can use, uh, you can get uh, 
dumbbells that are adjustable that you don't need to have multiple dumbbells. So they can really be space saver type of equipment. You can do push-ups, you can do body weight type exercise, so any resistance. Uh, but the the more uh, access you have to different tools, the greater your ability to develop your physique and to develop your uh, your health too, to some extent. Um, but for those who want to maximize uh, their gains, um, it's you need to uh, put in the time. So you, you're not going to be uh, you can achieve. I, I think the real take home here from that perspective is you can get great gains on a very basic, uh, minimalistic type of routine. But to you need to kind of go up exponentially to optimize your uh, your genetic potential. So it requires exponential effort to really continue to push towards your closer and closer to your quote unquote genetic ceiling. Uh, I'll also, I don't know if you can link it to the uh, podcast, but I collaborated on a position stand on hypertrophy, which actually Stu Phillips was on that, but some of my other colleagues, um, I don't want to leave anyone out, but Eric Helms, some really great uh, researchers in the field, James Steele, James Fisher, Joe Zogurgic, Andrew Vygotsky, um, Cody Hahn, Hopefully, I'm not leaving anyone out offhand. I but think anyway, you've a pretty good. You've tried pretty hard there. So. We uh, we published a position stand for the IUSCA, and we talked about uh, general guidelines for maximizing growth. So it's a good paper. It's open access, free to read. Great. Okay. Well, you've motivated me. I'm I'm always been more of an endurance person. I had Michael Joyner on, and he said he, his goal was to get by the time he's seventy to get as much muscle as he can, because then it's really hard to hold on to it. I'm turning sixty-one tomorrow. And I actually went to the gym today in Copenhagen and I've only been here for a few days. So I'm going to get onto it. So thank you very much for coming on. It's, uh, it's been great. My and, pleasure. Uh, Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Okay. See you. Thanks, mate. All right. Ciao. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.